All right, well, good morning. It's great to be with you uh, this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. Uh, with that, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, you probably have uh, access to a Bible on your phone. You can follow along there, or there's a blue Bible on the ground near you. Um, this year, what we're doing, uh, especially in um, kind of our sermons this year, is focusing our uh, attention around our, our church's core value of beauty. And um, one of the reasons that we're doing this, and I've, I've said this, is, is that we tend to talk about the goodness of God and the truth of God. Uh, and even if we don't find those arguments uh, you know, persuasive, ultimately, we're used to those sorts of arguments for uh, for Christianity. And I think that the truth and goodness sort of are like this like push that sort of says, like, you really should follow Jesus. But the beauty, the glory of who God is, it, it has a different way of interacting with us and sort of pulls us. Um, there's, there's the truth and beauty that says, you really should do this. But let me get a glimpse of the glory of God, the goodness and the beauty of who Jesus is, the beauty of who Jesus is. It, it has the effect of saying, oh my gosh, I want to follow Jesus. And the reason I mention that is because this passage, I think, is just a really beautiful picture of the way that works. So if you would stand with me and uh, let's read uh, or listen as I read God's word around the world today and and throughout history. uh, Christians uh, are standing as we read uh, the gospels, the word of God together. And it's a reminder that we come to God not just on our own, but as, uh, as a community. So John uh, chapter 6, verse 1, says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw signs, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And they went up, uh, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are, we, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. What does it say that? Probably because there was a lot of grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now skip down with me to verse 27. Jesus says, Do not labor for, that, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures through eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? 
And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is God's word. Let's pray to God. Oh God, would you fill our hearts and our imaginations and then our hands uh, with the things of Jesus. Would you change us uh, to be people who then go out into our places of work, our neighborhoods, to uh, bring the bread of life to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So uh, Jim Gaffigan is a, uh, is a comedian, and uh, I was reminded of, of uh, Jim Gaffigan um, uh, this week as I was studying this passage. Jim Gaffigan talks about, uh, you know, he's very self-deprecating, talks about eating a lot, and uh, Jim Gaffigan has, has this bit where he talks about vacation. He says, vacation is basically just eating somewhere that we haven't been before. And, uh, you know, you go on vacation and you go, oh, we haven't eaten there yet, let's go there and eat, and then we should probably eat something. And then there's this thing we're supposed to eat, to, supposed to see, and then we'll eat something, and then maybe after that we'll go out to dinner and, and uh, finally get something to eat. <laughs> and um, it's funny because it, it occurred to me that that's not really just a way to think about vacation, that's sort of a way to think about life. Like, life is just what happens in between eating, right? Like, I wake up first thing in the morning, I can't do anything until I have coffee, and then I get ready and have breakfast. And then I do a little work before I eat, and then I do some more work, and then eat, and then put the kids to bed, and then eat some more. And, you know, days are kind of ordered by, by, uh, by our eating. Um, we, we are hungry people. And of course, uh, of course that's true in a physical sense. Um, but the you know kind of irony uh, is that no matter how satisfied we are, we will always be hungry in a little while, and um, and that that's true in in more ways than just with regard to our physical hunger for food, isn't it? We are hungry, we are hungry people. Um, we are hungry people. We hunger for something that will truly satisfy. We hunger for something that we can't really even begin to describe. But we we all have the sense that. That, uh, that, that life should be different, that we should be satisfied. Um, we are hungry. We want to be satisfied. And that's what this passage is about. Uh, it's it, interesting to think about bread. In the ancient world, bread was the source of sustenance. It was the main thing that people ate. You know, meat was a luxury. You'd only get meat, you know, maybe a couple of times a year, vegetables. Um, don't tell my children this, but it was dangerous to eat vegetables, right? Like, you could get sick from eating vegetables. So, what do you eat? You eat bread. And uh, bread's this amazing thing. You take, has anybody baked bread? I mean, like everybody's, we all baked bread like once or twice, right? Uh, maybe you haven't, I don't know. But this is what happens when you bake bread. You take some flour, like very ordinary ground wheat, right? And maybe you put in a little salt and some water. 
I don't know if they actually added yeast in the ancient world. I don't know. But like you just let it sit there. It must have seemed like magic to them. Like it would just rise and then you bake it. It costs like eight cents and you can feed your family, right? But there are no preservatives and every day you've got to bake bread uh, again. So food, uh, bread was the nourishment, the sustenance um, for the ancient world and still for much of the world today. Every culture has bread. I was wondering if that was too broad of a statement. I'm like, do they have bread in China? Like, Google it. There's, yeah, like little known facts. Lots of bread in China. <laughs> Lots of bread in China. Um, a year or so ago, there was a, a young uh, woman in our church, a German uh, woman. She was a au pair. She was here for, I don't know, 18 months or so. And uh, I remember her saying once, like, why don't you have bread? Like in Germany, we have so many different kinds of bread. And I, I don't know, maybe there's more kinds of bread in Germany, but we just have different bread. Like every culture has got bread. You go to Mexico and there's tortillas and you go to India and there's non-bread. Like everywhere you go, there's, there's bread. Um, every culture has its own bread that has nourished the human race for thousands of years. And so why am I saying that? Because think about how audacious of a statement it is that Jesus says, I am the bread. Like, bread has been the primary thing. Like, there's gluten-free bread. I know that some of us are like, you know, we don't eat gluten. There's gluten-free bread now, right? Uh, bread has been the source of sustenance, nourishment for most humans for the majority of, like, human existence. And Jesus says, I am the true bread. That is a startling statement. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning is this, how hungry are you? What do you think will really satisfy you? What do you think will really satisfy you? Uh, a couple things that I want you to see in this passage. And the first thing we've got to see is, is, our, is our great need. You know, we'll never go looking for the true bread unless we realize how great our need truly is. We see this in this passage in John 6. Jesus has been teaching. He's doing these incredible signs. And, and, and crowds are coming out to see him. And he's out here like on the the side of this mountain talking and, and the crowds show up and it says that there's uh, 5,000. Well, you know, the, the heading in most of our Bibles say Jesus feeds 5,000. But that's, that's erroneous because it says 5,000 men, which was the way, you know, they just counted like heads of household in the ancient world when they would take a census. So it's 5,000 men means there's 15 to 20,000 people there. And, uh, and they're there and... Um, all these people are, are they're out in the middle of nowhere. And it says that Jesus is testing his disciples. And he asks Philip, he says, where are we going to get bread for these people? Um, I mean, it would be a real disappointment if 20,000 people like, came out to see Jesus and starved to death. That's not a great way to get your ministry up and running. Where are we going to get the bread for these people? And Philip says, uh, 200 denarii. Denarii is about a day's wages. So 200 days worth of work, like eight or tw- 10 months, like that wouldn't even get everybody here a crouton. And then um, Andrew jumps in and he says, hey, there's this boy here. He's got five loaves of bread and two fish. And it's almost like he's in the middle of, of as like the words are coming out of his mouth, he goes, and what would that be for so many? <laughs> Real quick to the punch there, and then it doesn't work out. But uh, um, it's interesting. It says that Jesus knows what he's going to do, but he asks this question to test his followers. Okay, what is the test? I think the test is this. Do you recognize how needy you are? There are 20,000 people out here who are going to starve to death. 
You know, there's no Trader Joe's. There's no uh, DoorDash. <laughs> there's no like Amazon drones delivering food within minutes. You guys have that, right? Not maybe next week, like Amazon's gonna just deliver food when you need it, but like that didn't happen, right? They're going to starve to death unless somebody does something, they have this huge need. And Jesus is testing them saying, um, you know, what are we gonna do to see if they understand how needy they really are? So what about us? Do we understand how needy we really are? Uh, this week, um, I met with a, uh, had a conversation with a, a guy giving advice about life insurance. I'm like, at the point in my life, where I've gotta figure this stuff out. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't know anything about life insurance. Um, but I probably don't, you know, I need some, right? I don't know what I need. I don't know how much it costs. I don't know what's like normal. Um, and so I'm talking to this guy who's giving me advice and, he, and he's telling me these things like, well, what you need to do is take your wife out on a date and have a, have a very non-romantic conversation about what needs do you have if I drop dead tomorrow? <laughs> a fun way to spend dinner together. But he says, typically, you know, people talk about things like, you know, it'd be great to pay off the house. I'm like, you realize I live in Southern California, right? Uh, if you were to die, it'd be great to uh, you know, make sure the kids can go to college. I'm like, you realize I have four kids, right? Um, it would be great to, you know, for, uh, for my wife to not have to go to work for like, to have like three years without having to you know, go to work. You, again, you realize we live in Southern California. Like, I'm adding this stuff up. I'm like, you're talking about millions of dollars for the life insurance. Like, I can't. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. Like I, and he's like, this is just industry common sense. This is like what people do, you know, 10 to 15 times your normal like, annual income. That's about how much life insurance you should carry. I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't have what it takes to make that happen. Um, but that's us, you know, in so many ways, you know, in our, in our church, many of us, it seems like we are wrestling with this reality that we don't have what we need. Uh, we've got parents, we've got spouses uh, who are sick, and we're just helpless, and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to help. Um, we've got, um, many of us are parents, and, um, you know, sometimes, maybe this is just us, my wife and I look at, look at each other, and we're like, what do we do? <laughs> You know, like, no matter what we say, the response is like, Mom! Dad! No! Well, I don't know what to do. I don't know. Some of you are single parents. Like, six parents wouldn't be enough to, to, uh, to parent children. The, to parenting is impossible. We don't have what it takes. Um, you know, the work that you're all doing, we're all doing, is very hard. And, uh, and we live in a place where it's really expensive to live. And so we're, we're working hard and getting paid well. And, and somebody said to me recently, if you had told me you know, when I was in high school that I would one day make as much money as I make now, I probably wouldn't have believed you. But if you told me I'd make that much money and it still wouldn't feel like it was enough, <laughs> I definitely wouldn't have believed you. And yet that's where so many people are. Um, we just don't have what it takes. Relationships are difficult. We don't have what it... What we need, we have these needs and we don't have the resources to meet them. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it, it's amazing to see the way that God is at work and God, God meets our needs. But the first step in spiritual maturity is recognizing our need. The first step in, in, our, in our spiritual development, our spiritual maturity, is recognizing that we have a need 
Um, and this is incredibly important because you can be on top of the world and there is still something wrong. There is still this hunger. There is still, uh, you still have a need that you cannot uh, meet. I, um, some of you know there's this, uh, I'm not going to say where it is, but there's this place that I uh, block out my Friday afternoons um, to write about stress slash stress about my sermon. And I, um, I go to this brewery and, um, and I'm not going to tell you where it is because I'm there to work. Um, there to get something done. But what's happening over time is like I'm getting to know the other regulars there and the people who work there and they know that I'm a pastor. And so like they come and we talk and like I have to, I'm going to have to find a new place to, to work some, uh, soon, I think. But I was there on Friday and one of the owners comes through and I mean, this place is like blowing up. I got to assume that business is great. And I, one of the owners I know, uh, he, he stops and talks to me. And I'm like, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a little bit. And, and uh, you know, his business is going great. He's on top of the world. And he's like, I have just been a wreck. Like, I, I'm anxious. I can't sleep. I'm up until 2, 4 in the morning. He's like, I've got tinnitus. Uh, I can't. And so I, I, even when I try to sleep, there's this ringing in my ears that I can't. And the doctors say they can give me this, like, hearing aids that put, puts another sound in my ears. And he's got everything going for him. Like you can be on top of the world and still you're unsatisfied. There's something that you need that you cannot, that you cannot accomplish. You cannot solve. We all know what that's like, don't we? And so Jesus is showing us that the first step in spiritual maturity is recognizing our need. You know, you, um, you are very competent people. <laughs> like you don't, Survive in Orange County for very long if you're not very competent. And yet the problem with being competent is that when we are competent, we really believe that we can meet any obstacle. Something hits us and it's like, I don't know how to do this, but, you know, I'll work hard. I got enough money to kind of keep things going for a bit. There's always the Google, like I can search for some things. Like I can figure this out. I can figure this out. And so competent people tend to be very slow to realize that, um, that we are needy. We may not be content yet, but we're close. It's just a little bit out of reach. Do you realize how fragile we are? Do you realize how needy we are? Do you realize that God created you to live within limits you know, the world says, do it, you can't accomplish anything. That's, that's, it's not true. <laughs> and it's not good either. God created you to be dependent on him. Are you hungry? Are you hungry? If so, I have good news for you because we have a God who satisfies. And that's the second thing we see in this passage. There's a God who satisfies. Um, at this point... You know, this is where, kind of what I said at the beginning about the, the pull of the beauty of Jesus comes in because this is the point at which every world religion is going to say, and you know what, you can be content, you can be satisfied, but it's up to you. So just work hard and, uh, and one day you'll get there. Um, or it's this call to living a life of asceticism and self-denial that says like, ah, no, don't even, don't even bother. Like just deny... Um, you know, pleasure is an illusion. Um, but at this point, Christianity is completely different because Jesus comes to hungry people and he doesn't, doesn't say like, here's a five-step plan for eating. <laughs> he comes to hungry people and he says, I am the bread. 
I'm the bread who has come down from heaven. If you get me, you will be satisfied. I am here to satisfy your longing. And if we hear him, we will drop our anxious scavenging and follow him. The beauty of Jesus draws us out of ourself into something grander and greater. You know, the story of the Bible in many ways could be told as the story of God giving his people food. Genesis 1, it's in the first chapter, God creates the whole world, and Genesis 1 ends by saying God gave every good thing to Adam and Eve to eat for food. First part of the Bible. The Bible ends in Revelation 21 and 22, saying all of human history is moving towards a feast that's about meeting Jesus. It's the book ends of the Bible, and it's everywhere along in between. Jesus is here and elsewhere constantly he's feeding people. But you see this in this passage. I mean, one of the key refrains of the Old Testament is, is, uh, is God uh, providing for his people food, manna, in the wilderness? Um, and we, we see this in this passage. Did you uh, notice when this takes place? It says uh, in this passage that... that <laughs> it said that this took place during the Feast of the Passover. And the Feast of the Passover is like the defining event for the Jewish people. Um, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and God raises up Moses, and uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and, and, uh, and they celebrate the Passover, and the angel of death passes over the people of God, and Pharaoh says, go, and they leave, um, they leave Egypt, uh, they leave slavery in a hurry. And then they go into the wilderness, and for 40 years, as they journey to the promised land, they're living in the desert, and God provides them bread. And every morning they wake up and there's this manna, there's this bread that has like floated down and they gather up enough for that day. If they gather up enough for two days, it spoils the next morning, except on Friday because on the Sabbath they, they don't collect food. So God provides his people bread. God provides food for his people. And the rabbis, uh, the rabbis had taught that when the Messiah came, the chosen one, the one who would finally show up to make everything right, that he would provide bread like Moses had, uh, like they had received in the days of Moses. And so Jesus comes here and he feeds vast crowds with bread. And he says to them here in this passage, we read it, that bread, like Moses didn't provide that. God provided that bread from heaven. And then he says the most audacious thing. He says, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. I am the true bread. And Jesus, what he is saying is this. He's saying, I am the one who comes to nourish you. I am your provision. I've come to heal you of your sin and your shame. I've come to satisfy you. In verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He's saying there's a food you can eat, and it, um, you know, it perishes, but there's another kind of food that endures to eternal life. What is that phrase, eternal life? What do you think that means? We tend to think that eternal life has something to do with life after death, that there is a life that comes after death. Um, now, imagine if that's what it means, that your existence is going to continue on forever. Um, now, if that's an existence of frustration, of dissatisfaction, of hunger, 
what does that existence extended into eternity sound like? like there's a word that the Bible uses for, this, for that. It's, it's hell. <laughs> what is eternal life? Uh, there, there are two Greek words. The New Testament was written in Greek. There are two Greek words for life, bios and zoe. Bios refers to like an organic living thing that has life in it, like biology. Uh, bios simply means that it's, a, it's an existing thing. It's a living thing. It's, it's talking about life as existence. Zoe, Zoe means absolute fullness of life. You remember the Dead Poets Society, Robin Williams, he's teaching these kids and, and he's telling them about when he was a student. And they created this society called the Dead Poets Society and, and he, here's how he described it. He said, I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life to put to rout all that was not life and not when I had come to die discover that I had not yet lived. That's Zoe. That's fullness of life, sucking the marrow out of life. Really living, that's, that's what we all want, isn't it? Okay, so Zoe, Bios, which one do you think Jesus is talking about? He's talking about Zoe. He's not talking about merely existing. He's saying, I've come to give you fullness of life, food that endures to fullness of life. I want you to experience that forever and for now. And that's what we're all looking for. That, I think, is, that, I mean, that's why people live in Orange County, right? We want to not just survive, we want to flourish, we want our kids to soar. And there's a lot that you can do to fill up your life. A lot of good things we can do to fill up our lives, a lot of great things, a lot of fun things. We can go on vacation, and we can have beautiful homes, and we can, you know, all of these things, relationships, and all of these things are good. There's nothing, you know, you know, some of that is, is tainted and sinful. Most of it's not. Like, most of it's not evil. But what Jesus is saying, and we all know this, is, is that it doesn't satisfy like, it doesn't ultimately satisfy. He said, um, in verse 27, he says, don't work for the food that perishes. Do you know what kind of food perishes? Like, food. <laughs> the kind you eat. Anything you want to eat perishes because it's organic, right? And, and he's saying that the, the, there are these things in our lives that we fill up our lives with that are, that are good. They're not necessarily, like, evil in most cases, but if you toil for them, if you put your hope in them, if you, if you look to them to be the thing that will give you the fullness of life, they will never satisfy. Don't work for the food that perishes. It doesn't say don't eat the food that perishes. Did you see that? It doesn't say don't eat it. He says don't toil for it. Don't put your hope in it. Like, eat these things. Enjoy them. Just don't expect that they're going to fill you up and satisfy you. C.S. Lewis Mere Christianity wrote this. This is really profound. Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they uh, would know. I think I copied this wrong. <laughs> this is what it says. Most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that, that offer to give it to you, but they can never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. 
I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may have been a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. If you get the best that this world offers, it will only fill you up for a week or a day or an hour. A couple weeks ago, I said somewhat tongue-in-cheek that, uh, you know, I really want a new Tesla, like the, the, the cheaper one. But I know that it'll only make me happy for two weeks. Somebody assured me that it lasts longer than two weeks. <laughs> and again, I'm still willing to give it a try, but... Um, you know, even a new Tesla only lasts for like three weeks. Don't put your hope in food that will only fill you up for an hour or for a day or for a week. Put your hope in Jesus. Jesus is the true bread of heaven who endures forever. And if you get him, he will satisfy. If you get Jesus, he will satisfy. He is the only thing that will satisfy and he will satisfy. Okay, so that re- lead, leads us to a very obvious question, doesn't it? And it's this, how do we get that bread? How do I get this goodness in me? Like, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it, but how do I get it, right? Um, this is what the crowd says. They, they say, um, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, what I want you to see is this. How do you get the bread of life? The, how do you get Jesus into you in a way that he truly satisfies? And, and what, I, what I want you to see is that bread is really ordinary. It's really ordinary stuff. Jesus doesn't say, I am the filet mignon of life. The thing that's ultimately going to satisfy us is something that is really, really ordinary. It's just bread. Um, you know, um, when uh, we go out to eat, we, um, you know, you go to places where like, uh, go to Selma's, you go to the ranch, you go to Pizza Port, there's other places like they all have this thing, like the little game room for the kids, and they go, my kids run back there and they play games, and, but they really, really, really love the, the, you know, the machine where the claw comes down and they, you know, grabs a toy and it's like so important. You get that thing that costs three cents. It's like such a big deal. Some, I heard a friend mention this, um, and if you Google this, this is all over the internet. Uh, pictures, videos of kids so excited about these cheap import toys that they like put their heads in through the slot thing, and then they climb up in there, and then they're sitting surrounded by these like plush toys. And they're so happy, but they're stuck. (laughs) Could there be a better picture for the place and time that we live in? Like, we got this stuff, and we're stuck. Sometimes it occurs to me in the moment that might be the best thing I've ever said. <laughs> we look for this excitement. We look for, 
you know, uh, we look for God, we expect God to show up in unexpected ways and change our lives. Um, and yet, uh, when we get them, we're stuck. We look for an emotional high. Um, you, know, you know, you don't need to go to church to get an emotional high. And this is why we're stuck, because we're looking for an emotional high, and you don't need to go to church for that. But if you're going to walk with Jesus, if he's going to be the bread of life that truly satisfies in the ordinary stuff of life and the ups and downs, you just cannot do that on, on your own. Like, you need people to walk this with you. Um, Jesus shows up in really, really ordinary ways. I was talking um, recently to a divorced parent who is uh, worried about, this person's worried about their kids and um, wants their kids to be baptized. Uh, said, I want to know that God is going to take care of my kids. And I want to know that the church is going to be there for my kids. That's what baptism is about. It's really simple. It's really ordinary. It's about God placing his name on you, calling you his own and welcoming you into his family. In just a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's really ordinary. It's, it's just a little bit of bread, a little bit of wine. Um, Jamie Smith, James K. Smith is an author. Uh, I wrote a book called um, Desiring the Kingdom, and he said, talking about the Lord's Supper, as we come and take the bread and the wine together, he said, in the supper, we celebrate a sanctified sort of letdown. Sanctified sort of letdown. What's he saying? He's saying that as we come to the Lord's Supper, um, it's really ordinary. <laughs> it's not that much food. You know, if you're hungry, it's not really going to fill you up. Nothing magical is going to happen when you take the Lord's Supper. Um, and yet, in this really simple, ordinary um, act in some ways it leaves us wanting more reminding us that, that this is really just an hors d'oeuvre for what God is preparing for us as we together anticipate the coming feast even while at the same time we come together as the body of Christ as the church and celebrate and, 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 and encounter Christ and he nourishes and strengthens our faith it's really simple, it's really ordinary God shows up in ordinary ways and in the sacraments as we gather together for worship, as we pray, as we, as we read his word. You know, I'm, um, I'm, almost, uh, I'm almost 40. Well, I mean, I just turned 39. Um, but I'm like, I realized the other day that nobody has referred to me as that young pastor in a while. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm becoming middle-aged. Um, I've been, a, I've been a Christian for almost three decades. I've been a pastor for uh, more than a decade. And I say all that just to say that I just recently have kind of begun to experience um, the reality of finding satisfaction in God's Word. Like, I've been reading it for a long time. A long time. But, like, only very recently have I begun to experience this sense of slowing down to be with God, um, to listen to his word. You know, Jesus was, um, when he was tempted in the wilderness, 
It's that after he'd been in the wilderness for 40 days, he hadn't eaten. He's hungry. And Satan comes to him and tempts him and says, you can turn these stones into bread and feed yourself. And Jesus responds by saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what that means for us is this, that for hungry people trying to figure out in this ordinary way, how do we get the bread of life into us in a way that we delight in in God and in a a way that we're experiencing Zoe, the fullness of life. What that means for us is this, that, that our first job every day is to slow down and find time to just delight in who God is, to abide in Christ, to remain, to experience his love. Reading his word, praying, spending time with him. I'm sure I'm going to talk about this more in the coming weeks, but for today, let me say this. You may be a business person. You may be a teacher. You may be a stay-at-home parent. You may be a grandparent, you may be a teenager, you may be a student, you may even be a pastor. It is impossible to hear the words of God if we don't actually carve out time to stop and listen to him, to read his word and to pray. I, like This is a very elaborate way of saying, like, guys, we got to read the Bible. <laughs> our first job, our first task each day is really simple. It's really ordinary and yet it is profound. It's the task of finding delight in Jesus. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will satisfy you but Jesus. But he will satisfy. So let me ask you, are you hungry? Where do you think you're going to find satisfaction? Maybe, maybe it's time to give Jesus a try. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, thank you for uh, the beauty, the beauty of who you are. God, I pray that these uh, words would just grab us, would compel us, would move us, pull us uh, out of ourselves and into something greater. God, we are hungry people. We are hungry people, and we spend our days... um, looking for something that will satisfy (coughs) thank you that Jesus comes to us and says I am the bread of life God I pray as we come to uh, the Lord's table now that you would meet us that you would use these simple elements this bread and this wine uh, to nourish us uh, to fill us with this kind of holy discontent that both brings us together at your table as your people uh, with Jesus and with one another. And it also whets our appetite for uh, something greater that you will do. Would this meal uh, both nourish us and and change, uh, change us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.